So Mark's Gospel, chapter 11 is where we are headed. If you got your Bible, you can go ahead and open up there. We'll do a little work before we get to that. Um, this Wednesday is First Wednesday. So if you're relatively new to Hill Spring, we, um, we do one Wednesday night a month, most months. Summertime, we kind of take that off. But August, we fire back up on our first Wednesday. And so to start first Wednesdays, we do a fellowship dinner, 5 o'clock, absolutely free. You just come, bring your family. We got food for you, food for your kids. Sit across the table for somebody you know, somebody you don't know. Just it's like, you know, dinner on the grounds. And so that starts at 5. You don't have to be here at 5. Um, but then service starts at 6.30. So we serve dinner from 5 till 6.15, 6.10 or so. So come and eat, and then service starts at 6.30. And then we do some things a little bit differently in First Wednesday. Um, we'll take communion, we'll do some ministry time, we'll do a little bit more worship. Like, we just slow down just a little bit. Now, I do want to warn you, for those of you that, that are coming this fall for our First Wednesdays, we are going to have some just fun, okay, what I think is fun. Some people think I'm boring. But uh, just some conversation uh, around some of... The scripture, some of the things that like, I mean, I'm careful with the word deeper, but just go into some of the Bible conversation because there's been times we've, we've touched on things that like, man, it'd really be cool to kind of talk a little bit more about praying in faith versus praying God's will and, and having those types of conversations. So this first Wednesday is going to be kind of panel driven and uh, just going to kind of jump into some of those questions and answer that. So, man, I hope you'll come and be a part of that. It, it's going to be going to be a good theological conversation. Also, if you're relatively new to Hill Spring, put Wednesday night, August 9th on your calendar because that's what we call growth track. And really, that's kind of orientation to Hill Spring. It's our membership class. Like, well, we want to join. Well, come on, baby. Wednesday night, August 9th, we feed you dinner. We've got childcare for your kids. You do need to register for that so we can know how many to plan for. So our next growth track offering is August 9th. And we, at the same night, we offer step one and step two. You don't have to come for both. Like if you just want to come be a member and find out kind of the orient, how we got here, how Brent and Jerry got to Hill Spring, you can come for step one. Or if you're kind of ready to jump on the dream team, you can stay for step two. But that is August 9th and uh, we'll do that. So uh, your boy here turned 49 yesterday. Okay, sympathy applause. Yeah, I hear that, right? I got you. So Jerry and I have been married, we got married in June of 2001, so it's the little things. I'm trying to, you know, trying to be a good husband. And um, so where are my people that when you open a tube of toothpaste and you take the cap off, like you don't need the cap anymore. Where you at? Come on, like a tube of tooth. Like, yes, I'm with you. In last service, it was just me and my daughter. We're the only ones who take it off. Where are my people that like, oh, you have to put the cap on every time. Where you at? Come on. Andrew, sermons are not interactive. <laughs> you can say amen. amen. Well, there you go. So I'm the guy, like my daughter's just like me, like I take two Bob, I don't, I don't even know where the cap's at, I don't need it. So I was trying to change my ways, and so I wanted to just kind of surprise Jerry, and so I'd start putting the cap on. Like I didn't want to, wasn't going to make a big announcement, wasn't going to say anything about it, just start putting the cap on and, you know, see if she noticed the little things or whatever, and so... We're driving the other day, and she's like, okay, I gotta ask you, why have you stopped brushing your teeth? <laughs> that didn't really happen, but I thought it was a funny story. So. Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, we're walking with Jesus. We've spent all of 2023 walking through the Gospel of Mark, and man, I've just had a blast. Even some of the stuff we're gonna jump in today, 
Um, he, let, me, let me just kind of tell you a little bit the philosophy of Hillspring Church. Like, you, you might be going through a marriage thing today. I don't know necessarily the principles we're going to talk about today are going to speak right to your marriage. Might. What I do believe is the Word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so even during COVID, just kind of a preaching shift happened in me that I'm dead set on, on teaching the Word of God, getting the Word of God in us so that when we do hit those tough moments, when we get stressed or squeezed, that's what comes out. I think it's really important to understand context, understand the theology, all of that. So that's why we're on like week 300 of the Gospel of Mark is because I just want to do what Jesus did. I just want to walk the way Jesus walked. Amen, everybody. Okay, so you're in Mark chapter 11 with your Bible. Just hold that because I'm going to read a similar yet different story in John chapter 2. And I'm going to explain all of this of how this works together and how this pans out. So John chapter 2, you don't need to turn there, I'll put it up on the screen. Um, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, doves for sacrifices. Cattle, sheep, doves, multiple animals there, okay? He also saw dealers at the tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. I knew your boy Jesus was a cowboy. Come on, yeehaw, right? He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers' coins all over the floor, and turned over their tables, verse 16. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he said, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Verse 17. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. Okay, talked a little bit about this last week. There are four books in the Bible that tell the story of Jesus, and that's their sole purpose. And we call them the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Their synopsis, their storyline is very, very similar. Mark wrote his, Matthew read it, probably used it as a source. Luke used those as a source. And then you have John. John had not read Matthew, Mark, and Luke when John wrote his. So his, his story is a little bit different. His timeline is different. Like in this story of John talking about clearing the temple, he has a whip. He uses different verbiage than what we're going to see in Mark. And really it's before Jesus even has disciples. What John chapter 2 is probably most famous for is the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns water into wine. He leaves that wedding. He's headed like every good Jewish person to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he clears the temple. No one knows who he is. He has no followers, really. I mean, this said that his disciples remember the prophecy, but he doesn't even have the complete 12. You keep reading in John's gospel, he will call some other people to be some of his closest companions. So John chapter 2 really is at the beginning, just before Jesus really moves into his public ministry. That's where John has him clearing the temple. Now, you and I, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. Today, we're in Mark chapter 11. Remember, if you were here last week, Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem. That happened on a Sunday. So this story takes place on Monday of Holy Week or Passion Week. This is leading up to the trial, the execution, but the resurrection of Jesus that would happen what we celebrate on Easter weekend, all right? So Jesus would ride the donkey into, he would get off that donkey, go to the temple. He would kind of look around on Sunday. Let me show that to you in verse 11. So Jesus came to Jerusalem, went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with his 12 disciples. So when he goes back to Bethany, he's going to stay with his dear friends, Mary, Martha, 
and Lazarus, whom he rose from the dead. He called him out of the tomb, all right? So verse 15, when Jesus, or Jesus and his disciples, when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called the house of prayer for all nations. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. Verse 18, when the leading priests and the teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how they would kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. Verse 19, that evening Jesus and disciples left the city. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell this story of Jesus clearing the temple at the end of his ministry, Monday of Holy Week. Now, critics of the Bible will say this is an issue, that your details don't match, that John says Jesus cleared the temple at the beginning of his ministry, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke have it at the end. Mm -hmm. And we're like, oh no, it must all be false. Or Jesus cleared the temple twice. I don't know, like that, you know. Once he did it, nobody knew who he was. Once was at the beginning of his ministry. It didn't have little impact. Like he had a couple of disciples, but he didn't even have the full 12. Nobody had any idea who he was. Three years later, everyone knows who he was. He had just been celebrated riding on a donkey and they were singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This time it would make much more of a significant impact. So I want to dig into Mark chapter 11 where Jesus clears the temple for the second time in his ministry timeline, okay? And there's some application, there's some things, your notes say today's application, but that really means right there on the scene, the day that it happened, the day of application, right? But there's also some future implications that takes about this story. And so we're going to roll up our sleeves, we're going to do a little work, we're going to chase some wild goose, geese. And we're going to have a little bit of fun. Amen, everybody? Okay, so the first thing I want you to see, kind of, I worded it this way, is just not for profit. Like churches, if they follow the proper paperwork, we are non-profit organization, okay? I think one of the things that triggered Jesus the most was when he showed up, Mark chapter 11, at the temple on that Monday, it looked more like an open market than it did a reverent house of worship. So let me set the context for you, okay? The outer court of the temple was full of booths, full of money changers. Some of the more prominent, the bigger Jewish holidays or Jewish festivals or what we refer to as pilgrim festivals, meaning Jewish folks, if they physically were able, financially able, they were to travel, and a lot of times they would travel via caravan in groups because it's safer, they would travel to Jerusalem. While they were there, they would go visit the temple. They would worship at the temple. They would make a sacrifice at the temple and they would pay their temple tax. And people would travel all over, from all over Judea, really Israel area, but they would also travel from neighboring countries because they were Jews that got displaced during the Babylonian exile. It was estimated that the population of Jerusalem, 30 AD, where this story roughly takes place, about 500 to 600,000 people lived in Jerusalem, okay? One source that I read said it was very possible, they suspect that 
over two million pilgrims would travel to Jerusalem at Passover for one of these pilgrim festivals. They would come to worship at the temple. So the city is now four times its normal size. And it was required of every Jewish male, 12 years of age and older, that you would go to the temple and pay your temple tax. And your temple tax was the equivalent to two days of working wages, all right? Well, in the story of the history of, of the temple, a corrupt high priest came along by the name of Anna, okay? And he developed this money-making scheme that would benefit financially. He personally would, but the temple would also benefit financially during these pilgrim festivals when four million people were coming to Jerusalem. There was only a certain type of currency, a certain type of coin could be used at the temple. The temple refused to take money or coinage from anywhere outside except for the shekels that were minted in Jerusalem for the purpose of the temple. Now, the back part of that story, that began with a good intent. That began with a pure heart. So let me, let me tell you why. Let's say, for example, Jews that were traveling from other countries, other nations. If they were coming, they were bringing the currency from those nations. And there's no telling what those coins had on them. For example, the people that were coming from Tyre, which was a, was a neighboring region, the Tyrian currency had pagan gods on it. Didn't have Caesar, didn't have people on it. It had images of their gods. And so the Jews did not want to take the coins that had images of other gods and they didn't want that donated at the, at the temple. So what they would do is they would set up, you can bring that money, you can't take it in the temple, but we'll exchange it, okay? Now, the kicker is there would always be a small nominal fee, right, to exchange that. And it wasn't necessarily dollar for dollar. There was an inflated rate of exchange. So this high priest, Anna, what he decided he would do is like, well, listen, some of these coins have pagan gods, so we can't risk any coin other than the ones we make. So if you're going to come to Jerusalem and you're going to offer your temple tax or sacrifice, you have to have our official coinage that's minted right here in Jerusalem. So it became a money-making opportunity for the temple. All right, And obviously, these vendors that were changing money, they were also having to give a kickback to the temple. I'm going to pay to have the best booth location so people will come to my booth, and I'm going to pay to be in the outer court and not necessarily out on the street, all right? So Jesus walks into the temple on Sunday. He rides the donkey, gets off, walks around the temple. He doesn't do anything. He just kind of observes what's going on. And then the Bible says he goes back to Bethany, and that's where he would stay with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he spends the night, and I assume he just tossed and turned and he just stewed on it and stewed on it. And the more he thinks about what he saw on that Sunday, the more frustrated, the more mad he got. And so by the time he woke up on Monday morning, he was like almost nuclear. He was frustrated. There's a story about a fig tree that we don't necessarily read in Mark chapter 11. But it just shows you Jesus is he's on a mission. He's headed to the temple. He's going to clean it out. And he walks past this fig tree and it doesn't have any fruit on it. And he basically curses a fig tree and keeps moving. He's in a bad mood. Okay? I want you to just catch that. Okay? He goes into the temple. He starts turning over tables. He starts tossing stuff. 
He clears the temple. Let me also say, nowhere does he talk about the offering. Nowhere does he say, don't give to the tabernacle. Don't give to the temple. Nowhere does he talk about what the temple is spending their money on and what it's being used for. He just sees a corrupt system that is taking advantage of people who are doing their best to be obedient and making their sacrifice and paying the temple tax that they owed. If that makes sense, say amen. Okay? So the first thing I talked about was not for profit. Jesus was frustrated that this corrupt system was making money off the backs of poor people. Secondly, everybody repeat after me. I love BK. If you're new, we do not have a thing for Burger King. Like, you know, like BK. No, my name's BK. I have a country band called BK and the Brand. Booking engagements. For, no, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Right. So I got to say something hard. And so I have you say you love me because this next one, it's going to step on our toes a little bit, but we're mature enough to take it. Amen, everybody. Number two is cheap worship. Cheap worship. So not only would there be money changers, so you could swap your Tyrian gold that doesn't have pagan images on it. You, you could get the temple coinage and pay your temple tax, right? But you also had to offer a sacrifice in and around Passover. Remember in John, where it talked about there were sheep and cattle and goats and doves and all that, right? You had to offer that sacrifice. Now, the original intent of these sacrifices, when God told Moses and the children of Israel, listen, you go to your herd, your herd, you go to the sheep that you own and you get your best one from this year's crop. And you bring it in close to the house and you take care of it, you make sure it's safe, you make sure that it doesn't break a bone, you make sure that it remains pure, unblemished. And then you take this one that you raise from your crop, your herd, and that's what you take and you offer as a sacrifice, okay? The problem is people traveled from all over. If you lived in Jerusalem or in and around that area, sure, you could do that. But if I live 12 days travel away, do you know what a nuisance it is to travel with a pet goat? Where does the thing sleep? It's going to eat something it had not to. You know what I'm saying? Like, what do you do with Ferdinand the bull while you're trying to travel 12 days journey to get to Jerusalem? So what would happen is people would just take money and I'll just buy a goat when I get there. I'll just buy a lamb when I get there. And then, of course, there were vendors who would be happy to sell it to you. Those same vendors would also give a kickback to the temple so I can set up my pen of goats or sheep right here in the outer court so people will come to me and, and do that. So not only did the outer courts look like this open market where there's money being exchanged, but it also smelled like a livestock sale barn. Your boy's a redneck from Talala. I worked at a sale barn once. It ain't pretty. It don't smell too good. I mean, there's high school basketball locker rooms, and then there's livestock sale barns that are about the same equivalent. You know what I'm saying? It was convenient. So we're going to go on a little wild goose chase. For some of you that don't like wild goose chases, we'll wake you up here in about seven minutes. But for some of you, I want to, I you guys okay if we chase a little goose? We're going on a goose chase, right? All right, so you don't need to turn there. I, I wanna, I'm going to put some verses up on the screen. If you want to write these down for reference, you can. But in 2 Samuel chapter 24, what's important you need to know is that King David, this is, 
This is thousands of years before Jesus came on the scene. King David is an old man. He's at the end of his reign. And Jerusalem and Israel is a united nation. It's at peace. And he wants to take a census. Like he wants to count the men that are fighting age so they can serve in his army. And really it's a pride thing. Even his best advisor comes to him and says, Jesus, says David, don't do this. You don't need to do this. I, I pray that there be hundreds of thousands of men that are, but don't, don't do, you don't have to do this. You don't need to do this. But he does it anyway, okay? And the Lord spoke to David through a prophet by the name of Gad, G-A-D. He's like, listen, because you let your pride get the best of you, there are consequences to be paid. And so the consequences, David got to take his pick. Remember that when we were kids, your dad's like, you can pick your punishment, you can be grounded for 12 months or I'll spank you right now. I'll take the spanking, okay? God said, David, you can pick your punishment. You have three years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemies or three days of a severe plague. And David says, listen, I would rather just get it over with like the spanking. He says, I would rather fall into the hands of God than into the fall into the hands of my enemy. So David chose three days of plague and over 70,000 Israelites died because of David's pride, okay? Finally, David is going to make a offering to God to like, God, if you'll just, be, if you'll just stop the plague, okay? That's where we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 24. I'm gonna read this to you, bear with me. I'm gonna read you know, a few verses here so you can catch the essence of the story. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 18. That day Gad, that's the prophet, he came to David and said to him, go up, build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Verse 19, so David went up to do what the Lord had commanded him. When Arana saw the king and his men coming towards him, he came, he bowed before the king with his face on the ground. Why have you come? I paid my taxes. Why are you here, brother? You know what I'm saying? Like, why have you come, my lord, the king, Arana asked. And David replied, I have come to buy your threshing floor to build an altar to the Lord there so that he will stop this plague. Verse 22, take it. Take it, my lord, the king. Use it as you wish, Arana said to David. Here, here's some oxen for the burnt offering. You can use the threshing boards and the ox yokes for wood, Build a fire on the altar. I give it all to you, your majesty, and may the Lord your God accept. He even says, may him accept your sacrifice. Verse 24, but the king replied to Arona, no, I insist on buying it, for I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that has cost me nothing. So David paid him 50 pieces of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen. David built an altar there to the Lord and sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the Lord answered his prayer for the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Verse 24, it's like the most famous part of the story where David says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God a burnt offering that cost me nothing. It is not a sacrifice if I don't have to sacrifice. It is not an offering if it was free to me and didn't cost me anything to give it. Can I go a little bit further on the bear hunt? Let's go a little bit further down the rabbit trail, all right? Let's now fast, again, I said in this story, David was an old man. Well, now David has died. 
long live the king didn't last very well, right? Okay, so David dies, his son Solomon becomes king. If you remember, David wanted to build the temple and God said, no, David, you got too much blood on your hands. I'm gonna leave that for your son Solomon. David was the fighter. Sometimes we're called to fight the battles to set the next generation up to be builders, okay? So David was the battle guy, Solomon's the builder guy. So Solomon, it's his turn now to build the temple and he's ready, okay? So I wanna show you something in 2 Chronicles chapter three. You don't need to turn them, we'll put it up on the screen. So Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David, his father. The, the temple was built on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, the site that David, like that, that's, that's the same spot where David went to Arana and said, hey, I wanna buy this. And he's like, no, you can have it. And he's like, uh-uh. I will not sacrifice a burnt offering to the Lord, a sacrifice that costs me nothing. That same place where King David himself, a man after God's own heart, he said those words, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God an offering that cost me nothing. Convenient sacrifice is no sacrifice at all. Convenient worship is not worship at all. Now I want you to get this. Jesus is standing in the same place where David said those words. It's a different temple because temples had been destroyed and rebuilt, but it's the same plot of land. Jesus is standing on the plot of land, the threshing floor of Arana. That day when he walked in and he saw they had turned this place into a place of convenient sacrifice. Yes, he was frustrated with the money changers. Jesus was frustrated with the corrupt religious elite, but he was also pretty frustrated with some people that came to worship and they didn't bring their sacrifice. Where, where's, where's, where's the lamb from, from your flock? Where, where's the calf from your herd? Oh, I'll just buy one when I get there. It's more convenient. What if it's not spotless? What if it doesn't meet the requirement? They had made this act of worship about the convenience of the pilgrim, not the praise of our creator. Do I need to say that again? They had made this about the convenience of the pilgrims, not the praise of our creator. Sometimes the offering needs to hurt a little bit. Sometimes you need to put a little bit of extra effort into the worship. Sometimes the gift that we give needs to be felt a little bit. Amen, everybody? You said you love me, so I'm gonna hold you to that. Some of y'all are like, I ain't falling for that ever again. Like, I love BK. <laughs> Let's talk about whoppers, you know what I'm saying? All right, number three is no room for you. No room for you. I love the movie Forrest Gump. I, I, it's a tragedy that the original has so much bad language and stuff in it because the made-for-TV version really is a fun community. I relate a lot to Forrest Gump, you know what I'm saying? And uh, I, the scene, if, you, if you've seen it, remember the scene where little Forrest is, is a little boy and he's getting on the bus and he's walking past all these kids. It's his first day on the bus, his first day of school, and those kids go, you can't sit here, seat's taken, you know, in that southern Alabama accent like Pastor Will, you know. <laughs> you can't sit here. And that's when he saw Jenny, you know, she's, you can sit here, right? Okay, so 
this open air market livestock sale barn, right? It was set up in the outer courts. We've established that. Wasn't, I mean, I'm sure there were some on the streets. I'm sure there were some maybe in empty lots as you approached the temple, right? But the very outer courts, like the lobby, okay? The outer courts, and, and nothing, there, was, there wasn't anything really spectacular or nate or anything in the outer courts, anything really like designed as part of active worship. That all happened in the temple, okay? And a good Jewish person could go on into the temple. They could go to where the altars were, but the non-Jewish people, and the Bible word for that is Gentile. The Bible has two categories of people. You've got Jews, descendants of Abraham, and you've got Gentiles. That's everybody else. The vast majority of us in this room fall into the category of Gentiles, unless you're of Jewish blood, okay? So the non-Jews could not go into the temple. They had to do their worship in the outer court. So if they wanted to come to the temple and pray, they had to do it in the outer court. The only place that Romans or Samaritans or anybody else, people from the neighborhood, if they wanted to come at Passover and partake in it, the only place that they could worship and pray was in the outer court. The outer court was still supposed to be a reverent place of worship. But I'm pretty sure there's a pen of goats over there, and then I'm pretty sure that dude just stepped in something. Woo, help him, Lord. And the marketplace atmosphere clearly communicated a silent message. If you are a Gentile, if you are not a Jew, we do not have room for you here. They were very uncaring towards people who were not like them. That's why Mark chapter 11, verse 17, Jesus said this, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Throughout the gospel, Jesus had had incredible conversations with Roman officials and Roman officers. There's times where he said, man, I haven't seen the faith like this in all of Israel. And he's talking to a Gentile. There was a Samaritan woman he went to bat for. She wasn't Jewish. If she was going to go to the temple and worship, she could not go into the temple. She had to be in the outer courts. The problem is that day, there was no room for her. There was no room for you and I. And Jesus was frustrated that there was no place for non-Jewish people to participate in the Passover. Number four, grace versus tolerance. There's a huge lesson here for you and I. I figure if you've stayed this long, you still love me, right? So there's a huge lesson here for you and I. It was present in first century Israel when Jesus was there that day in the temple, but it's also present in America in 2023. And this one's gonna sting a little bit. Chuck Swindoll says it this way. He says, be careful with tolerance because we are being pushed to become tolerant to the point of compromising our own convictions for the sake of peace. By the time Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, the Jewish elite looked, act, behaved more like Romans than they did Hebrew. They had compromised historic faith for the sake of treaties. They had allowed the temple to become a place of enterprise for their own personal financial gain. 
And that moment Jesus went in and he cleared that authority, he asserted his God-given, Son of God, divine authority, and he did it with humility and dignity, and he cleared the place out. And as followers of Jesus Christ, as Christians, you and I must walk this delicate balance between grace and tolerance, and it's hard. Because in the day and time we live in, it's so easy to be thrown into our face when people stumble or people live in a sinful lifestyle or whatever. They will say, well, don't judge me. And listen, there are some churches, there's some people that get that wrong. There's some people who look down there and say, hmm, you're going to wear that, mm-hmm. Man, I'm telling you what, the most Christians I know, most of the pastors and churches I hang out with, I mean, I get it, every bright light attracts a few bugs, but man, most of the people I know are like, I ain't throwing any rocks at you because, good Lord, if we get in a rock-throwing contest, there's going to be a lot coming back at me. Most of the people I know are just trying to take their next step of faith. Man, I'm here. You're going to fall. I'm going to fall with you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to be here to help you get up, and I need you to be here when I need to get up. And so it's not a judgment. Don't judge me. It's, listen, it's not a judgment. Many times in love, it is a caution. If you keep going this way, if you keep living this life, if you keep pursuing this, this is not going to end well for you. But the world wants to call that judgment. It's the story of John chapter 8, where Jesus is circled by a crowd of people and he's teaching. And the religious elite... They come and they throw a naked woman right in front of him. She'd been caught in the act of adultery. And what's interesting, the man is not there, just the woman. And they're like, Jesus, teacher, what do you say about it? She was caught in the act of adultery. What should we do? They were trying to trap him. He's like, well, law says you ought to stone her. He gets down and he writes in the dirt. The Bible does not tell us what he writes, but he's writing in the dirt. Here's what I think he was writing. I think he was writing their name and their secret sin right next to it. So, yeah, the law says we need stoners. So whichever one of you guys, Jim, whichever one of you is without sin, man, if you'll throw the first stone, we'll get this going. The Bible says one by one, starting with the older, smarter, wiser ones that were at least 49 years old. (laughs) Drop the rock. And they walked away. This is what Jesus says to her. Jesus stood up, said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them throw a rock? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord. And Jesus said, well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. He offered grace. He saved her life. He took a stand for her, even in her sin, she was guilty. My friends, that is grace, nor do I. (laughs) But he also said, go sin no more. You keep going down this road, it ain't gonna end well for you, girl. Go sin no more. Tolerance met its end. Grace and tolerance are two very different things. Grace is abounding Tolerance has its limits. When it bumps into truth and conviction, tolerance must meet its end. In the open air, livestock sale auction of the outer court of the temple, there are people who would say, Jesus, who do you think you are? Why are you being so judgmental? You turn, that's being a little judgmental, isn't it, Jesus? 
That's not very tolerant. Sometimes truth needs to be protected. Sometimes conviction needs to be taken a stand for. There is a right way and a wrong way to do that. Somebody ought to say amen. Which leads to number five. Strength and arrogance. Strength versus arrogance. Being strong is not the same as being arrogant. You can be strong and humble. Jesus was humble. He also was strong enough to endure the beating and being nailed to a cross. Arrogant means making claims of being superior, okay? That, my friends, was the Jewish religious elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They claimed that they were better. Who do you think you are going to come in here and turn these tables over and catch them goats? He's let them. Who do you think you are making a mess in here? And Jesus was like, not in my house, homeboy. Not in my father's house. We're not doing this. He didn't just clear out the outer courts and then leave. When you look at the other gospels, he cleared out the outer courts and then he stayed. He stayed most of the day teaching, healing, ministering, teaching and talking some more. And that did not sit well with the religious elites. Who does he think he is? In this story, in this moment, there is this clear contrast between strength and arrogance. Verse 18 when the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what he'd done. They began planning how to kill him, but they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. They wanted to destroy him. They wanted to kill him. They did not like him because he was not one of them. He didn't go to their schools. He wasn't trained by their big names. He didn't dress like them. He didn't act like them. He wasn't pretentious like them, right? They couldn't trick him into playing their little games. Just like Jesus, you and I need to stand for what we believe. We need to stand firm. We need to stand strong. When you know the truth, you need to stand for the truth and don't give in. But in that process, guard against arrogance. You can be strong and not arrogant at the same time. In these moments, I would rather look more like the strength of Jesus than the arrogance of the religious leaders. That's some of the stuff that just happened that day in the moment. I, I, I love to, to, oh, that's why the money changers were there. because there were coins that had pagan gods. Oh that's, oh, that's why there were sheep in the outer court. Oh, I didn't even think about the non-Jews. I, I love to study that stuff. So there were things that were immediate implications that day in 30 or 33 AD there in the temple. But there was also some future implications about what Jesus did in that moment that impact you and I. Jesus was not only frustrated with the corrupt religious system that had been used to manipulate and oppress people, those with the power, they would add to God's law, they would add to the original intent of God's law, and it was a system that was based on a man and a woman's ability to keep 613 Hebrew laws. Listen, I have to really stop and think about the Ten Commandments. Oh, yeah, you know. To remember 613 laws never occurred to me that in just five days' time, those tables that Jesus turned over, they wouldn't be needed anymore. See, this happened on Monday. Remember, Jesus rode in on Sunday, looked around, left. He came back on Monday. He's in a bad mood and cleared everything out, right? 
that Friday, Jesus would shed his blood on the cross for the remission of our sins. On Friday, the veil in that very temple would be torn in two from top to bottom. On Friday, the covenant would be changed forever. Did it ever occur to you and I that he wasn't just turning tables over, he was literally turning the tables? The old covenant would be fulfilled. The final sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God would be sacrificed so that you and I could be made in right relationship with our Creator. Worshippers would no longer have to buy a sacrifice to go to church because on that Friday, Jesus was the sacrifice and He paid our debts in full. Jesus not only practically cleaning out the temple, He was prophesying of what was coming in just five short days. No longer based on my ability to keep a set of laws. It's based on my ability to believe that Jesus is the way, truth, and the life. For those of us who have been Christians for a long time, that's pretty easy. But for some time, for a person's first time hearing the gospel, that, that's, that's a big step. It's, it's not based on my ability to clean myself up or keep a bunch of rules. It's based on my ability to to believe that a person that lived, walked, breathed 2,000 years ago, he was more than a man. Like, his mom was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So yes, he was fully human. He, he, he had anger like we did. He had sadness like we did. Jesus experienced temptation like we did. He walked and talked and he was hungry like we were. But he also had a supernatural, God-given divine ability to overcome that temptation and live a perfect life to qualify to be the perfect sacrifice that you and I would need. So you have to have the faith to believe that. Romans says this, that if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means that you have to believe that he really was the Son of God. If you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, meaning he's the only one. Everybody else that raised from the dead, they were called out. Somebody was there to say, Lazarus, come out. Young girl, get up. Jesus was the only one that had the ability to supernaturally raise himself from the dead. So if you confess with your mouth that I believe he's the son of God, I believe he's the only one, you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Here's the gospel. All of us, everybody in the temple that day, all of us here, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have made mistakes. All of us are separated from God. That's why Jesus came. He said, I'll go. I'll go be that sacrifice. I'll pay. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Jesus said, I'll shed my blood because he's the only one that would qualify. Have you ever confessed and believed? Have you ever done that? Have you ever taken that step? It's not about your ability to keep a bunch of laws. It's not about your ability to give a bunch of money. It's about your ability to, in your heart, believe Jesus is the only way you can be saved and I'm gonna place my faith all across this room with every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody moving around. If you're here today and you know that you are not in right relationship with God, you feel it. Like, even while we were singing, there was something pulling and calling you. I'm gonna help you confess and believe. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer and it's not magic words. I'm just gonna help you confess and believe. We're just gonna simply say a prayer. What's important is that we say it with a sincere heart and completely surrender our life. I'm not gonna embarrass you. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to talk to anybody. You in this moment, this is between you and God and I'm gonna lead you in this prayer. 
Are you ready? Maybe you're watching online today, and I'm talking right to you. I invite you to pray this prayer with me. If that's you, just pray, Dear Heavenly Father. Right there, just Dear Heavenly Father. I come to you today because I need you. Now, I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm a sinner. I don't want that life anymore. Would you come into my life? Would you forgive me? Would you save me? Would you make me a new person? I may not understand all of this, but I believe. And I'm taking that step of faith. Today, Jesus, I surrender my whole life to you. Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody moving around. You're here today and you prayed that prayer. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to walk up. I just want to pray a quick prayer for you. I want to know where you're at. Would you just slip up your hand? Anybody here today, just slip it up real high. Okay, I see them in the back. The best decision you'll ever make. Anybody else? Spirit of the living God, I thank you for the hands and hearts today. Boom, held high. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Thank you for being that perfect sacrifice, willing to lay down your life so that we could be made right with our creator. Father, I pray for those hearts today coming home. Or it's not an emotional decision. This is a decision of eternity. It's a decision of faith, taking that step of faith. God, I pray that you just fill them with your spirit. Pray help them take that next step of obedience. Lord, bring Christians around them to encourage them. Let them be excited to tell somebody about what they did to them. Father, I love you. I love what you're doing at Hill Spring Church. I love what you're doing in our marriages, in our businesses, in our families, in our homes. God, we don't ever want our worship to be convenient. I will not sacrifice that which costs me nothing. 